advocacy role. And we're very pleased to be supporting this event, which will raise funds for their important work. And I know that Autism Asperger ACT is delighted to have Graham talk about his Asperger hero, Don Tillman, a wonderful model of engagement, humour, loyalty and dedication. And I think a wonderful friend. He puts up with all his imperfect friends and their foibles and I think he understands that in fact all humans are under development all the time. Graham's first novel, The Rosie Project, started life as a screenplay before being adapted into a novel and going on to win the 2012 Victorian Premier's Literary Award for an unpublished manuscript. It has since been sold around the world to over 40 countries and optioned for a film by Sony Pictures. And thinking about those 40 countries, I don't know, maybe I was living under a rock in 2012, but when I started to hear about the Rosie Project, I thought, oh, it was in the international press, and I thought, gee, that sounds really interesting. And, and I bought the book, and I was a few pages in, and I thought, hold on, this is set at the University of Melbourne. <laughs> and I hadn't actually realised it was an Australian book, because I think it went international so quickly. The very eagerly awaited sequel, The Rosie Effect, was published last year and has enjoyed praise from readers and critics alike, including me. So please welcome Graham. Thanks, Graham. Greetings. At 9.34pm, a group of 18 arrived, and the table that had remained reserved and unused for the entire evening was extended to accommodate them. Several were noticeably intoxicated. One woman, aged in her mid-twenties, was the focus of attention. I automatically estimated her body mass index, 26. <laughs> Based on the volume and tone of her speech, I calculated her blood alcohol level as 0.1 grams per litre. She's shorter in real life and a bit porkier. Jamie Paul, our bartending colleague, was looking at the group. Who? Who do you think? He pointed to the loud woman. Who is she? You're kidding me, right? I was not kidding, but Jamie Paul offered no further explanation. A few minutes later, with the party seated, wine man approached me. They want the cocktail geek. I'm guessing that's you. I walked to the table where I was greeted by a male with red hair, though not as dramatically red as Rosie's. The group appeared to be made up entirely of people in their mid to late 20s. You're the cocktail guy? Correct. I'm employed to make cocktails. What would you like? You're the guy with, like, a cocktail for every occasion, right? And you keep all the orders in your head? You're that guy? There may be others with the same skills. <laughs> he addressed the rest of the table loudly as the ambient noise was now significant. OK, this guy, what's your name? Don Tillman. Hello, Dan, said a loud woman. What do you do when you're not making cocktails? Numerous activities. I'm employed as a professor of genetics. Loud woman laughed again, loudly. Red hair continued. OK, Don is the king of cocktails. He's memorised every cocktail on the planet and all you need to say is bourbon and vermouth and he'll say martini. Manhattan. Or an American in Paris... Boulevardier, Oppenheim, American Sweetheart, or Man of War. Loud woman laughed loudly. He's Rain Man! You know, Dustin Hoffman, when he remembers all the cards? Dan's the cocktail Rain Man. Rain Man. I had seen the film. I did not identify in any way with Rain Man, who was inarticulate, dependent, and unemployable. 
A society of rain men would be dysfunctional. A society of Don Tillmans would be efficient, safe and pleasant for all of us. <laughs> a few members of the group laughed, but I decided to ignore the comment, as I had ignored the error of my name. Loudbourne was intoxicated and would likely be embarrassed if she saw a video of herself later. Red Hair continued, Don's going to pick a cocktail to fit whatever you want, then he's going to memorise everybody's orders and come back and give them to the right people. Right, Don? As long as they don't change seats. My memory does not handle faces as well as numbers. I looked at Red Hair. Do you wish to commence the process? Got anything with tequila and bourbon? I recommend a Highland Margarita. The name implies Scotch whisky, but the use of bourbon is a documented option. OK, said Red Hair, as though I'd hit a home run to win the game in the bottom of the ninth inning. I was 1-18th of the way to completing my task. I refocused on the drinks orders rather than on constructing a more detailed baseball analogy around this interesting number. It could wait until my next meeting with Dave. Red Hair's neighbour wanted something like a margarita, but more like a long drink, but not just a margarita on the rocks or a margarita with soda, but something, you know, different, like to make it more unique. I recommended a Paloma made with pink grapefruit juice and rimmed with smoked salt. Now it was Loud Woman's turn. I looked carefully but did not recognise her. This was not inconsistent with her being famous. I largely ignore popular culture. Even if she had been a leading geneticist, I would not have expected to know her face. OK, Rain Man Dan, make me a cocktail that expresses my personality. This suggestion was met with loud sounds of approval. Unfortunately, I was in no position to meet the requirements. I'm sorry, I don't know anything about you. You're kidding me, right? Wrong. I tried to think of some way of asking politely about her personality. What is your occupation? There was laughter from everyone except Loud Woman, who seemed to be considering her answer. I can do that. I'm an actor and a singer. And I'll tell you something else. Everybody thinks they know me, but nobody truly does. Now, what's my cocktail, Rain Man Dan? The mysterious chanteurs, perhaps? I was unfamiliar with any cocktail of that name, which probably meant she'd invented it to impress her friends. My brain is highly efficient at cocktail searching based on ingredients, but is also good at finding unusual patterns. The two occupations and the personal description combine to produce a match without conscious effort. A two-faced cheater. <laughs> I was about to announce my solution when I realised that there might be a problem, one that placed me in danger of violating my legal and moral duty as the holder of a New York State Liquor Authority Alcohol Training Awareness Program Certificate. I took remedial action. I recommend a virgin colada. What's that supposed to mean? That I'm a virgin? Definitely not. <laughs> Everybody laughed. I elaborated. It's like a pina colada, but non-alcoholic. Non-alcoholic? What's that supposed to mean? The conversation was becoming unnecessarily complicated. It was easiest to get to the point. Are you pregnant? What? Pregnant women should not drink alcohol. If you're only overweight, I can serve you an alcoholic cocktail. <laughs> but I require clarification. So that's, that's the rosy effect, and you've probably gathered that Don Tillman is back. Let me tell you, I, who's got Asperger's there? Yeah, I mean, you read that thing and people say, well, obviously Don Tillman has Asperger's. Who is behaving socially incompetently? Who is being unempathetic? Think about that a little bit, because I think we're very quick sometimes to, to label the person with Asperger's as unempathetic, unsympathetic, socially incompetent, and yet make the most enormous allowances 
for neurotypicals. Um, how many people here? How many people here identify as being part of the Asperger's community, um, autism community? Ah, not not as many as I thought. Um, we just got a sprinkling of hands, but you know, there have been times when I've spoken to groups and almost all the hands come up. And you know what? And I'm concerned tonight too with the group of people who do identify as being on the spectrum. Um, I stand up here worried that I might say something insensitive, incorrect, inappropriate, hurtful. I don't identify as being on the spectrum. I hope the irony strikes you. Here I am, the neurotypical, worrying about making a social gaffe. And just take note of that line because it's the most widely quoted line from The Rosie Effect. A society of Don Tillmans would be safe, efficient and pleasant for all of us. So... Thank you very much to um, AAACT. I have to work that together. I haven't got to AAACT. Thank you also to the National Library and the Associated Bookshop. Um, and thank you to the University of Canberra. I won't name the many people um, who have helped make this happen. What a fantastic turnout. Let me tell you, it was not always like this. When, when the Rosie Project was first published at the beginning of, two th- of 2013, um, let me just say, my publicist did the best with the material available, being the book and me. And the best she could manage was a library in rural South Australia at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on a Wednesday. <laughs> so I have, I have turned up full of enthusiasm, walked in the door, and just as you walked in tonight and you saw the table set up to sell the books, and saw the local bookseller, and I introduced myself. I said, tell me, how many books did you bring? He said, ten. (laughs) And I said, ten? Are you sure this is going to be enough? And he said, "Uh, you're new to this, aren't you? (laughs) And my my audience, such as it was, wheeled themselves in and... (laughs) Headed straight past me for the tea and biscuits, which were clearly the reason to be in the library on a Wednesday afternoon. And after a suitable amount of time had passed, the librarian walked up. She didn't use these words, but she might as well have. She said, now for the compulsory part of the afternoon. (laughs) And she sat them down, my audience of ten elderly women, and she said, I'd like to welcome... Graham Simpson, he's written a book called The Rosie Project and he's going to talk about it. I'd also like to welcome our bookseller, Harry. (laughs) Now, she could have also, she could have easily said, I want to welcome Harry, the small independent bookseller struggling to make a living in a small country town, the hub of our culture, an important part of our commerce, struggling against the competition from the internet and the big chains who's probably dragged his kid out of school to run the shop while he comes down here to try to sell ten books. But she didn't say any of that. She didn't say any of that. What she said was, Harry's brought some books to sell, but you don't need to buy them from Harry. You can borrow them from the library. (laughs) And Harry looked at me, and I looked at Harry. So when I started my presentation, I said... I guess if you decide to read The Rosie Project, you'll borrow it from the library. 
I said, Bill, I want to put a scenario in your minds. At some stage in the next few months, I guarantee it, you will need to buy a gift for somebody. And you know how hard it is to find something for male or female, young or old, uplifting, not too expensive, a story behind it. I said, at that moment, you will be so glad that you bought that stack of signed Rosie projects at the library that day. And at the end, we had sold all ten books (laughs) with three on back order. And now, whenever I give a presentation, I tell that story for obvious reasons. (laughs) Suffice to say, you're never a prophet in your own land, but the book is travelling very well overseas. And you can imagine what it would be like for you if you got a gift from someone in Canada that had been signed by a well-known Canadian author, number one here... Need I, need I go on? No, pro- probably not. So that's, that's probably sufficient for the, uh, for the commercial break. Um, I now have essentially 25 minutes. Who's heard me speak before? Oh, God. I, I, I have indeed read said orange book about employment. So the, the good news is that I don't need to worry too much, with a couple of exceptions, about finding new material... <laughs> Just new audiences, that's all you need. So what, what I thought I needed to do was to cover um, not just what I've done with the Rosie effect, but I guess how I became a writer, um, where I got the idea for the Rosie project, how I went about writing it, what the response has been since, um, where I got the idea for the Rosie effect, how that happened, what's going on with the movie rights and so forth, um, all of which I've got to do in 24 and a half minutes. So... How do you do that? Oh, with a special emphasis on Asperger's autism. Um, How do you do that? How do you cover so much material in such a short time? And And the answer is, this is what novelists and screenwriters have to do all the time. Compress a story into 90 minutes or, or 400 pages. And the way that we do it is we look for important scenes. We pick and choose. And which scenes do we pick and choose? We pick the turning points. We pick the moment where something important changes. We've all had those moments in our life. We've all picked up the phone at some stage, I guess, and realised after a few seconds that life will never be quite the same again. Not always in a good way, sadly. And equally, we've all had those moments that we only realise in retrospect were tremendously important. We think, you know, little did I realise 30 years ago when he walked into that bar that today, blah, 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 blah. So, I'm eight years old. I'm at primary school. I'm sitting there and the teacher comes up to me and she says, Graham, remember I told you that your essay was the best essay I had read all year from a boy. Um, <laughs> doesn't change. She said, well, as, as promised, I have given it to the head teacher. And she put it down in front of me. And the head teacher had written in red, I will not read any essay beginning with the word I. And my teacher said to me, well, Graham, that is probably good advice. I suggest during is a pretty good idea to start an essay with. Well, if you were dramatising that moment, what you would have seen me do is push away that essay, metaphorically pushing away 30 years of career as a writer. I could have been Philip Roth standing in front of you today, but I'm not. 
pushing it away. And if you were still dramatizing that moment, you would have seen me reach out and pull a book towards me. And that book would be called You Will Go to the Moon. Of course, it didn't really all happen on the same day, but I did read that book because in the 1960s, we all believed we'd go to the moon and the correct sort of job for a young boy to get into was the sciences. Flash forward. We now find ourselves in Australia. You fade out in the face of that eight-year-old and fade in and realise it was the same person, but now he's 19. And it's a sad face. Why? We'll see soon because we pull back the shot and we see the building he's going into and it's a big sign up saying final year physics exam, quantum mechanics B. <laughs> and there would be a bunch of other people around, all male, about 60 people in all, all geeks. And trouble was, my, I had realised during that year that I was not going to realise my dream of being a theoretical physicist. The math was too hard. I'm not being modest here. The math's too hard for most people. But there was not going to be any Simpson boson. They weren't going to make some movie about my life. Wasn't, wasn't going to happen. And I had thrown in the towel, given up, didn't care anymore. And as a result, I hadn't done the study. And now the chickens were coming home to roost because I hadn't done the work. And I'm going to this exam knowing there'd be 10 questions and I had to ace the exam. The only way I was going to pass my physics course was to ace this final exam. wasn't going to happen. 10 questions on you know, requiring deep mathematical knowledge. Okay, you're watching this scene. You'd see all of us file into the room. You'd see the exam papers opened and this look of horror, boom, 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 music, fall over the room. Zero in on the exam paper. There's only one question. And that question, question one, what is the meaning of quantum mechanics? Three hours. <laughs> and 59 people in that room who could not write an essay to save their lives. <laughs> so the upshot was that I aced the quantum mechanics B exam <laughs> and was not passed, was not stupid enough to stick around and push my luck. So, flash two, I've now ended up where people who failed physics and you know, in mathematics or weren't good enough for careers in those fields ended up in the 1970s in information technology. Data processing, as we called it then. And let me tell you, if you think data processing people are geeks now, computer people are geeks now, you were not there in the 1970s because now you can go to college, to university, do a standard course, get spat out of the end of the sausage machine like a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant. Back in those days, there were no courses. They just said, what sort of people? We need people for computing, but what sort of people might have aptitude for computing? What people might be good with computers? Don't know. Maybe people who aren't very good with people. So... <laughs> They hauled us together and settled into the job. And I said we were geeks, but there are geeks and there are geeks. And any IT people here? Let me just say systems programmers, okay? And one day I'm sitting at my desk and the systems programmer appears out of nowhere. <laughs> Greetings, Graham. I have decided to enrol in a Master of Business Administration degree. I said, 
Oh, okay. Um, can I ask why? Yes. <laughs> why? <laughs> I have been stereotyped as a geek. I intend to acquire the knowledge necessary to overcome that stereotyping. Okay. Well, well, good luck with it. Can I ask, why are you sharing this with me? Since you suffer from the same problem, <laughs> wake-up calls come no clearer than that one. And I duly enrolled in a Master of Business Administration degree with him, and he said to me, we work together, we should study together, and we should timeshare study with physical fitness. So we embarked on a program of jogging. And he would have done all the pre-reading, all the cross-referenced reading. He would have digested it. Did I mention he was a very, very smart guy? He would have digested it, summarised it, and as we ran, he would spit it out into my ear. Let me tell you, this was a good thing. Not to mention getting fit. We were running six days a week. Optimum number. Well... All good things come to an end. He decided the Master of Business Administration was not for him and dropped out. But we kept running because I had discovered this was a really nice guy, that behind the somewhat forbidding facade, he was a heck of a nice guy and he was the fount of knowledge on everything. He was the guy I first heard about the internet from. He was the guy I first heard about Wikipedia from. He was the guy I first heard about today's topic will be remote access to Sun workstations using the new security protocol. We were going to hear about it. <laughs> Today's topic will be the evolutionary value of morning sickness. What? <laughs> I read this very interesting paper, and he would have always read this very interesting paper, and I just learned so much jogging with this guy. One time, we found ourselves, the two of us, in New York City at the same time, just overlapping one day. And he said to me, we're in New York City together, we should go out to dinner. Go out to dinner with you in Melbourne. Mm. So we agreed. And then my client said to me, Graham, we didn't get a chance to cover some of the things they wanted to cover today. That's fine. Right. But here's a deal for you. My husband and I will take you out to the best restaurant in New York City. Ah, oh, no, no. You know, in exchange for picking your brains. Uh, no, no, I'm sorry, but I've already got this, this deal going. And he said, bring him along. There's just one thing, you've got to wear a jacket. It was the 80s. I hadn't seen my friend in a jacket. You know, I called him up. You have a, of course I've got a jacket. All right, all right. So he turns up and he's wearing this hiking jacket, <laughs> this bushwalking jacket. And he proceeds to tell me how his jacket is superior to my jacket in every respect. It's visible in low light. It's waterproof. It's got multiple pockets. So he went to a cheap restaurant instead. And you can guess who solved the client's technical problem for them. So, I was here to talk about me. I got distracted. Okay. So, meantime, where was I? I was doing an MBA. So, I finished the Master of Business Administration. As a result, I was able to throw off all traces of geekiness to become the smooth raconteur that you see in front of you tonight. <laughs> able to sign books in any colour. <laughs> and I established a consultancy... Um, our camera manager, Phil Malcolm, is, uh, is here tonight. But we, we peaked at about 60, 70 people. I was in my 40s. And then 
Well, it's a long story, so I won't tell it all tonight. Suffice to say that I decided at the age of 50 to give it all away and to enrol in an undergraduate course in screenwriting. Okay? And the first, I had this idea on my head that I could be a screenwriter for all sorts of strange reasons. So, I've turned up first week at university, undergraduate course in screenwriting, and the teacher says, I want you to all go away and come back next week with a short story. A short story, yes, a short story. A short story about an interesting character because good stories come out of character. So, I've gone away. I have not written fiction since I was about 14 years old at school. And I'm now 50 years old. So, I thought, what sort of interesting characters... You can see where I'm heading, can't you? Okay. So, I wrote a story called The Jacket Incident. (laughs) Inspired by real people and real life. But just by that moment, really, that moment where we said, my jacket is superior to yours in all ways... That was the moment I took and then took, wove a completely different story around it and changed the character as well, but still inspired by my, my jogging friend. I showed it to a friend of mine because, you know, not having written for that long, I was very nervous about it. Sh- friend read it, said, not a bad story, he said. About a guy with Asperger's. <laughs> Never occurred to me. <laughs> we didn't have Asperger's when I was a kid. We had the radio club, Okay. And I was in the radio club, all right? <laughs> okay. So I took it to class. I said, this is the story of a man with Asperger's. Well, you know what? The end of the story, all I wanted to talk about. So you say this guy's got Asperger's. I don't think he'd want to go out on a date. People with Asperger's would rather stay home with the Xbox. You're saying this guy's got Asperger's. He's drinking. I don't think Aspies drink. You're saying this guy's got Asperger's. Is he wearing socks? What? I read that people with Asperger's don't like to wear socks. I think the story would be better if he's not wearing socks. Or if he is wearing socks, we need to know how he overcame his fear of socks. And and at the end of the class, the teacher said, Graham, I think it's obvious you need to do a lot more research on Asperger's. (laughs) And I thought, it's obvious that I shouldn't mention that word again. Because what happened was, as soon as I put that word on there, that was all anybody was interested in. They were interested in Asperger's. You know, around the drinking, for example. I said, you know, I said, I don't think people with Asperger's drink. I said, well, some people with Asperger's would drink. I said, yeah, oh, well, well, let's make him a typical Asperger's guy. I didn't want to make him a typical Asperger's person. I was textbook. I wanted to make him a real human being. So, long story short, I spent a lot of time expanding this story into what became first the Clara Project and eventually the Rosie Project. Everything changed along the way. The only two things that stayed, really, were Don Tillman's personality, he changed jobs, and the jacket incident. That just stayed there right, right through to the end. But one of the things that was important was originally, I imagine it, as a drama. We were going to learn about what is the meaning of quantum mechanics as we watched this drama, because Don would be a physicist. Lucky I changed that, because Big Bang Theory and, yeah... Um, would have been even more in the same territory than we are now. But I got, I got this... Thi- oh, the other thing that changed that was really important was it became a comedy. And why did it become a comedy? Basically because people laughed their heads off even when they weren't supposed to. <laughs> and my comedy teacher later, Tim Ferguson, would say to me, Graham, if you are gifted a character who creates comedy wherever they go, don't waste them on drama. 
comedy writers get paid double and for good reason. But, but comedy is also a way of opening people up. Once we're laughing, we're receptive to a lot of things. And Tim from Doug Anthony All-Stars was very strong on the idea that even with comedy, you know, comedy doesn't stop you tackling really important topics because I wanted to tackle an important topic. I wanted us to feel for Don and his life. Nor does it stop us having an emotional hit. Um, his motto was make him laugh, make him cry, make him think. And Tim does, I how they call it, stand-up because he's got multiple sclerosis. Tim gets up on stage and he jokes about multiple sclerosis for 45 minutes and he makes you laugh, he makes you cry, and he makes you think. So I really took that, I really took that from Tim. So I got, a, I got a screenplay. I got a producer who wanted to make it. And then she said, Graham, we'll never get the funding for this because the studios are so conservative. These days they want to do a remake, they want to do a sequel, they want to run with a really established writer, or ideally, in most films you'll see today, they want to adapt a best-selling novel, low risk. Cut two. I'm now sitting at my computer. I'm now enrolled in a novel writing course. <laughs> and I sit down and I write the... Rosie Project, a novel. <laughs> and then I do the thing that in the whole history of writing the story made the biggest difference. I write the first word. And the first word is? It's not during, let me tell you that. <laughs> it's I. We are first person. And now, instead of imagining somebody up on the screen who we say, weird guy, and I'm doing my best to try to tell you how he functions and where he's coming from, we're in his head. We are seeing the world through his eyes. Every word except dialogue spoken by other people is his words. The comedy changes from being performance-based, hardy, hardy, ha, to being observation-based. Because what does the observational comedian say? Huh? What's this about? I mean, what's, what's it about when you have to wear a jacket to a restaurant? I mean, what's that about? And that's Don Tillman. He's doing that and he means it. So... He's exposing, he's putting a forensic eye on the, you know, the quirks of the way that we do things and you know, asking a very good question. Why? Why are we doing these things? So I completed this sucker in four weeks flat. <laughs> plus the five years, if there's any writers out there, <laughs> plus the five years I spent on this screenplay. Um, showed it to my wife, who's a writer. What do you think? Does it read like a real book? Showed it to my daughter. Well, it's better than I thought it would be, Dad. <laughs> Emailed it to my jogging friend. He texted me back from the plane to Las Vegas because he can do those sorts of things. This is the greatest novel I have ever read. <laughs> he said, there are tears in my eyes. You should get the Nobel Prize. <laughs> So I had no useful feedback at all. <laughs> so I, spent, I spent three weeks tidying it up. And long story short, it won the Premier's Literary Award for an unpublished manuscript. That brought publishers to my door. To put this in perspective, this is 2012. I started writing in February 2012. Won the Premier's Award in um, June 2012. Um, and had a contract for publication with Text Publishing, my favourite publisher, in even then, um, before they did the deal, in 2012. And they offered, in June, and they offered me an advance of $1.3 million. 
<laughs> no, they didn't, <laughs> she said. And how true was that? <laughs> Spoken like another writer. <laughs> no, no, they didn't. They, offer, they offered me an advance equal to three days of my day job, which I, was, which I was still doing. But then the Germans stepped up in August. They offered a six-figure sum in euros, and suddenly it was on. For a couple of weeks, we had about um, 200 publishing houses around the world, reading The Rosie Project, because, you know, what were the Germans on about? And at the, at the end of that month, I was able to raise a glass and say goodbye to the day job. So what has happened since then is The Rosie Project's gone on, 40 countries, a couple of million copies, and so on. And film rights did go full circle. Sony Pictures came to me, wanted to option the film rights, We'll get one of the best screenwriters in Hollywood to adapt your book. Excuse me. And my agent said, that's very sweet, Graham, but this is Hollywood. Anyway, we talked about it. I got the gig. I've written the screenplay, my two drafts. They've renewed the option as of February. Nothing's guaranteed in Hollywood till the cameras roll, but if I had to make a bet, I would bet at the moment in favour of it being made. And no, we haven't made any casting decisions yet, <laughs> but I believe they're very, they're very close. So exciting stuff with that. And then I was not going to write a sequel for all sorts of reasons. Romantic comedy shouldn't have sequels, blah, blah, blah. But you know what it was? It was people saying to me, Oh, you've got an unreasonable happy ending in The Rosie Project. Someone like Don couldn't make a successful relationship. And that bugged me because I'd seen plenty of people like Don and some probably far further along the spectrum than Don um, who have made very successful relationships. So, And I also felt that Don, you know, when you're gifted a character who creates humour and so forth, I hadn't used Don all I could. So for all of those reasons, I came back and decided to write The Rosie Effect. Um, I was normally talking a bit about the writing process, but you can ask me questions about that. I want to give you just a taste of what the response has been from the Asperger's autism community, to particularly the first book, because I, before I published, I was tremendously concerned that I had not put something out there that caused distress. I didn't mind people arguing about it. I didn't mind people being vocal about what they disagreed with in the book or the portrayal of Asperger's syndrome because Donna's got Asperger's syndrome, okay? Um, How do I know? Because I had lunch with Tony Atwood. And up till then, I was always saying, look, I'm not a psychologist. I didn't do any research on Asperger's syndrome. How how would I know? And Tony Atwood said, Graham, Don has Asperger's. So, (laughs) so, So it's official. But I got... So I got the manuscript out to a bunch of people who identified as having Asperger's, who had it in the family, um, plus some support organisations, plus some people who were harder at the harder end of the, of the autism spectrum. Got nothing but positive responses. But I have to say, on the night of the launch, I've just finished the launch, I'm in a bookshop, you know, 50-odd people, family and friends and that, and, you know, done a big round of applause... And at that moment, this guy just walked straight up to me and he says, my name is Martin, I've got Asperger's syndrome and I have a problem with your book. (laughs) And I said, go on. (laughs) And he said, page 33, line 17. (laughs) Don says he doesn't want a partner 
who is mathematically illiterate. He said, the word is innumerate. <laughs> Don Tillman would not make that mistake. <laughs> and, you know, it was great because I was able to say to him, not, oh, get over it or something like that. I was able to say, no, I discussed that with my editor and someone in mathematics or science will actually use the term enumerate to mean can't count, can't do simple arithmetic. Mathematically illiterate, can't do quantum mechanics B. And so I said, excellent, I'll take two copies. Actually, three. I lie, it was three copies. And I said, why? And he said, to show my friends what it's like to have Asperger's. So, so that, that's been, in all sorts of forms, that has been the most exciting and interesting feedback on it. Now, look, I, I said I've got till 6.10 on this. I've got three minutes up my sleeve. Let's, let's do something fun. Let's raise some money for Asperger's slash autism, please, guys. I have here a copy of the UK hardback edition of The Rosie Project and a copy of the UK hardback edition of The Rosie Effect. The author's copies, they can be signed, dedicated in any way or colour <laughs> that you like. Can I hear $5? I have 5 Can I hear 10 I have 10. 15? Can I see 15? 15? I have 15. Can I have 20? Can I have 20? 20. Can I see 25? 25? I have 25. 40? 40. Can, I, can I see 40? 40. 50? Can I, see, can I see 60 anywhere? I see 60 over there. I have 60 over there. It's against you, sir. 70? 65? I have 65, lady in pink. 80? I have 80 there. At the back? I have 90. Can I see 100? Can I see? I see 100 there. 100 there. I have 100. Yours is 100? I have 100. Anybody? Any, 110? I'll take 120. I'm taking 10s. Anybody for 130? 140? Kicking goals. $150. Yes. <laughs> Can I see 160 anywhere? 160? 170? I see 170 at the back of the room. Can I raise your hand again? Or did I just imagine I saw that? No, it's 160. Where's the, where's the one? Where's the, there's, okay, 160. Can I see 170 anywhere? 170. 170. I see 170. Can I see 180 anywhere? 170 going once. 170 going twice. 180. I have 180. Can I see 190? Can I see 190? I see 190 there. 190 in the middle. Yep. 190. 200. 200 is against you in the middle. 200, 200, 210, 210, can I see, two, can I see 220 anywhere, it's against you, I've got 210 in the middle, can I see 220, 210 going once, against you, 210 going twice, 210 to the middle, <laughs> well, hey, thank you, <laughs> come down and grab it now, <laughs> oh, and come down at the end, you can come down at the end because I think we've now exactly 6.10. Don Tillman would be proud of me. Let's have some questions. <laughs>